Sepsis, or the infection causing sepsis, starts before a patient goes to the hospital in nearly 87% of cases. Sepsis is a medical emergency. If you or your loved one has an infection that's not getting better or is getting worse, act fast. Get medical care immediately. Ask your healthcare professional, could this infection be leading to sepsis? And if you should go to the emergency room, learn more at cdc.gov sepsis. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudiman. On today's show, we have someone who is incredibly special to me. He's so special that I almost don't want to share him, but I will because he's great. His name is Vadim Lieberman, and he is the new managing editor of ERE Magazine, which is an online magazine for recruiters and talent acquisition professionals. But well before Vadim worked at ERE, he worked at a place called the Conference Board Review, and he was my boss. Vadim has such an awesome take on the world of work that I had to invite him on the show because he thinks critically about tools, about techniques, about methodologies, about technology. And I love that about him. But the reason why Vadim changed my life and was such a great boss is because he bullied me into vegetarianism. That's true. Vadim loved me. And when I started working for him, I ate bacon and I loved bacon and I would talk about bacon. And after a lot of drinking and a lot of conversations about how meat is made, I came to the conclusion for myself that meat is murder. On today's episode of Let's Fix Work, we do not talk about vegetarianism, I promise you, but we do talk about the future of work, technology, trends, all that kind of good stuff. And I think what you'll find in Vadim is a really brilliant mind, a really fascinating guy who's got a contrarian view on the world of work, and yet he's getting stuff done and he's making a difference. So if he can thrive as a contrarian, so can you. So if you're ready to hear from someone who actually had to give me feedback for a living and lived to tell the tale, well, I think you're going to enjoy my conversation with Vadim Lieberman and Let's Fix Work. Work is broken, and so is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is picking up the pieces so you can take control of your career, put yourself first, and be your own HR. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hey, Vadim, welcome to the show. Hi, Lori. I'm so happy to have you here today, Vadim. Why don't you tell us who you are and where you're calling in from? Yeah, so I'm calling in from glamorous New York City here <laughs> in my very unglamorous little shoebox studio apartment. Well, as for what I do, I mean, my last day was actually yesterday at the Star Conspiracy, where I was a consultant for HR tech brands and for marketing. But I will be starting a new role at ERE Media as editor of ERE.net and just planning content and conferences for the talent acquisition community. So I'm really excited. Well, that's not a bad job. And I'm a fan of ERE. People who knew me back in the day knew me through very early conferences at ERE out in San Diego and Florida. And it's a wonderful community founded by David Manister. And, you know, I'm a fan and he gets to be your boss. That's a pretty good thing. Yeah, it is a good thing. You know, when he when he hired me, I told him the exact same thing that I told my previous boss at the Star Conspiracy when he hired me, which is, thank you. I'm excited. But one day you're going to regret this when you fire me. <laughs> right. And true, true to form, here we are. <laughs> hey, here we are. But just to be clear, I was not fired no. from my last job. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Well, Vadim, you and I know one another for a lot of reasons. We go way back and we can talk about that in a moment. But you think a lot about the world of work. And so that's why you're on the show today. This is something we've bonded over over the past decade. And I thought maybe we could start at the beginning of your career because you have a background in fashion and marketing. So were you good at either of them? 
you know, the fashion part, that depends who you ask. I mean, (laughs) I think you've seen my closet in my apartment. So it's kind of debatable. Probably the same thing can be said about marketing. Depends on which client of mine you would have asked in the past. I would say overall, whether it's fashion, whether it's marketing, or just no matter what I'm doing, I still try and bring or infuse my, you know, my best self and my sort of contrarian type of thinking into work to make it interesting, fun for me, for others. I mean, otherwise, what's the point, you know? That's right. Well, I like to tell people that when you and I worked together at the conference board review, you were really my best boss ever. But that's not true because the best boss ever was our editor-in-chief, Matthew Budman. So let's talk a little bit about how we met and what it was like to work at the conference board and maybe what the conference board is. Yeah. Well, so the conference board is a nonprofit, I guess, think tank, for lack of a better word. They put out reports around economics and work, as well as do conferences. They have councils of professionals, but they also had a magazine, the Conference Board Review. Like you said, that's where we met. You had a great column there. I was your editor. And it's still, I say this all the time too, it's still funny to me that you even call me your boss because (laughs) anybody who knows you knows that there's no bossing you around. You probably (laughs) boss me around more. Let's be clear. (laughs) No, wait, wait, wait a second. That's not true because you were really one of the first people in my life, you and Matthew, who could see me as like a competent writer, but also were gentle around my weaknesses because I was an emerging writer back then and gave me feedback and challenged me on my logic and my thinking, which you still do today, but in a way that didn't diminish my original idea. And every time you edited a piece of my writing, you made it better. And I think a lot of people think editors and managing editors, they're like grammarians, right? All they do is look at your typos and fix it. But that's not what you did. Like, what did you do at the conference board? What was your job? Yeah. Well, first of all, I am the worst when it comes to typos. I'm like horrible. (laughs) I just typos all over the place with me. But in my role there, I was a senior editor at the magazine. So I worked with a whole bunch of writers like you, assigning content, assigning articles, editing articles, writing pieces myself, interviewing a whole range of people, which is really how I got interested in the world of HR and work. And I just found it really fascinating because those are always the best stories that I like to write. So it was really interesting talking to a whole slew of different people about different ideas, because at the end of the day, I love a good idea. I love a good contrarian idea too. So it was really intellectually stimulating for me. And we worked with Matthew Budman. And for those of you who don't know him, I'll have a link to his LinkedIn profile in the show notes. He's now over at Deloitte producing content over there and really managing that whole process. But I appreciated working for Matthew because he gave me a big runway to write the stories that I wanted to really just do what I wanted to do, right? And he would say yes or no at the end, but he really encouraged me to think creatively about the world of work. And then when we started working together, Vadim, he was really good about saying, I'm still your point of contact, but guess what? Vadim's now responsible for you. And so he didn't like kind of push me off, but he, he encouraged me to work directly with you. And I don't know, I just thought he had a really good style about him, but that's because I'm a fan. I don't know. What do you think about Matthew? Oh, total, oh I'm, I'm totally a fan. You know, once the magazine closed and we were both laid off and found new positions, I had gone on to work in Prudential in talent management there in that department. And he landed at Deloitte, of course. But in a sense, I feel like that bonded us even more because now he was no longer my boss. Now yeah. I could consider him a real friend because I actually don't feel like a manager and, and a subordinate can never be friends in any kind of true sense. Wait, wait, do you feel that way? It's true? No, that's totally true. I absolutely do feel that way. I feel like you could be friendly, but you are not friends 
with your boss. You're not friends with the person you manage. The dynamic is too skewed. It's too odd. You can't have a normal friendship with somebody who determines your performance, how much you get paid, all of that stuff. The dynamics are just not conducive to friendship. Yeah, I think that is the harsh, cold reality, the truth. But we have a line in our society right now where everybody's like, collaborative and their friends and their family at work and you go to work to learn and grow and love <laughs> like all these things that we used to do outside of work is now happening within work so while I don't disagree with you that you can't really be friends with your boss that's not what we tell people today or am I wrong I mean I think we we sell them on the line that your boss can be your friend your boss wants what's best for you your boss is almost like your dad or your mom yeah I have a, a, well, my father's not alive anymore, but I had a father and I have a mother and yeah. that's not my boss. I'm so happy that you brought up the notion of family at work because I think that that's a buzzword that gets thrown around a lot. And it came up recently in my exit interview at my current job where I was asked, okay, well, how would you describe the culture here? You know, and I was kind of at a loss for words. I'm like, oh, what do other people say? The person who was interviewing me said, well, a lot of people bring up family. I said, oh, no, no, no. No, no. You guys are not my family. You never have been. You never will be. I have a family. But it did get me thinking, and I feel like I landed on the right word, that in the context of workplaces, I feel transcends the notion of family, which is community. I found community. I had found community at my previous job where I found my people right? And we had a lot of similarities and there was respect and empathy and kindness and fun and, and all of that good stuff. But it's not family. You don't get to choose your family, but you do choose your community. And I think that's a powerful notion. And like I said, one that transcends family and is far more descriptive of what a great culture can feel like. Yeah, I love that. I love that distinction. That's really interesting because so often when I've worked in corporate America, the thing that was lacking most was community. And that was one of the reasons why I believe it drove me out to seek my own community, my own group of peers, why I ended up at the steps of the conference board going, please publish my work, right? <laughs> you know, and why I became friendly with you and friendly with Matthew and eventually friends with both of you. It felt more like community than anything else I'd ever experienced. And I think that's one of the things that Matthew brought as a boss was the sense of like, you belong here and we're going to try to take what you do and make it even better. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And and to this day, Matthew and I are in touch all the time. I will frequently text him or send him a Facebook message just saying, Matthew, I need to talk about an ethical dilemma just in general, not for me, but just in general in life. I'm like, tell me what to think because <laughs> he's one of the <laughs> smartest people I know. He had and continues to elevate my work and my thinking. And he's just a nice, fun, normal, cool, all around great person with, by the way, a fantastic wife, Christina Beltran, who <laughs> I just went out till four something AM dancing with this week. So, Oh my God. She's living a life. She is living oh a life. God. Oh, it's Absolutely. I'm jealous. Love that woman. Love her. One of the things we did together at the Conference Board Review was do a video that I believe shut down the magazine and eventually got you fired. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about that video that we did? Lori, what did we talk about? I can't, I'm trying oh, to remember. I remember the video, but I'm trying to I think we just talked about your views on work in general, I think right? You, did you talk about pedophilia? <laughs> you know, funny you, you mentioned might have, that. You might have. You might have talked funny about the ethical you, dilemma around pedophilia. 
funny you mentioned that because two of my favorite topics to talk about, not pedophilia, but like even in my last workplace, which is great because I had coworkers who were conducive to having interesting philosophical dialogue about things like, well, my two favorite topics or two of my favorite topics, infanticide and infidelity. <laughs> I love alliteration too, by the way, you should know. So, so tell us why you love infanticide and infidelity. Oh, that's a whole, I mean, that's a whole 3 a.m. conversation <laughs> after like 12 vodka shots. I mean, I, in a nutshell, and I think maybe this can be applied to work in some respect. Uh, you don't have some to stretch context, it. It's all good. I feel like for something, for an act to be morally, ethically bad, somebody has to be harmed. And like, I don't know, take infidelity, for example. If one cheats on the spouse, and the spouse never finds out, and the spouse doesn't feel any differently as a result, like like maybe the cheater is not treating the spouse differently, well, that spouse's world experience has not changed. And again, for something to be ethically wrong, there has to be a bad outcome. Well, there isn't a bad outcome. Therefore, infidelity, I sanction infidelity under certain circumstances. Interesting. So there you go. Interesting. Well, I would say without becoming an episode of The Good Place or pretending like I'm a moral philosopher here, there are ways that actions can impact people without us even knowing it. Like there are, I think there are implications on a conscious level and a subconscious level. And so I think what we think we know about our behavior and its ramifications is different than the actual ramification of the behavior itself. Does does that make sense? It does make sense. But I would push back on that and say that if we rely on, if we fall back on the notion of, well, but subconsciously you might think this or subconsciously it might affect you this way, well, then you, you couldn't make moral judgments on anything in life because it's such an easy argument to fall back on, you know, and often an unprovable one too. Yeah, yeah. Well, all, I mean, all of this is theoretically unprovable, right? This is why we need more vodka shots in our lives. Uh, Absolutely. Never enough. Well, you know, you and I, we hung out through the conference board era, and then you went on to, I'm going to say, greener pastures and did a stint in HR. You like became an HR lady, which I love. Absolutely. So <laughs> tell me exactly what you did in human resources and what surprised you about it. Well, I never got to wear my, you know, some HR like string of pearls or a neckerchief. Or... <laughs> did you? Have the French manicure. <laughs> the cardigan. Right. Although, although my, I made this joke to my boss at the time at Prudential too. And, and I, when I made it, she happened to be wearing a belted cardigan. I love oh, it. <laughs> but what I did there was I worked in corporate talent management at Prudential. So my role was mainly around marketing and communicating all kinds of initiatives and programs around learning and development, leadership development, and performance management, as well as more general HR communication company-wide. So I was there for two years. It was a really great experience. It was the kind of place where neither I nor anyone who knew me could ever imagine me working. I mean, first of all, I live in Manhattan. This job was in Newark, New Jersey. <laughs> Every Manhattan night stream, right, to commute to Newark. I think you might have complained about that commute, though, for about a year, maybe a year and a half. Like, that's all I ever heard about was that commute. But it got better, right? Uh, look, I could still complain about it. I can complain <laughs> endlessly. And it's not a place that anyone who knew me would see myself working in, just given my personality. Like, I like to rebel against the status quo a lot, sometimes just for the sake of it. But here's the thing that I tell people that people sometimes I feel like they miss or overlook. People like me, you know, I kind of label myself as a workplace renegade on LinkedIn, you know, but people like me can actually thrive 
and really bureaucratic organizations like Prudential because there's so much to rebel against, <laughs> right? So I had my fun there too. It was a lot of fun. It was a great learning experience. I learned a lot, did a lot. And eventually they laid me off too. So <laughs> right. it all worked out. I remember when you were working there, and I think one of the reasons why you could thrive there as well is because you were a bit of an anomaly. I wouldn't say that you were entertainment, right? You were doing good work, but you were affable. You were interesting. You were kind of a team player, but you also weren't afraid to speak truth to power. And I think one of the things I love about you and admire about you is that you are, whether you believe this about yourself or not, and I don't know, I think you are truly fearless. And when you believe something, you're willing to go to bat for it, whether it's a position on the world of work or the way to communicate something or just the way to lead. Like you always have an opinion on how to run an organization. So have you always been fearless in the way that you communicate? It's interesting because you said, well, I don't know if I believe that about myself. I mean... I don't know. I don't really know the answer to that because other people aside from you have said the same thing. They've said, oh, you're fearless. You know, you always have an opinion on something. Whereas I always feel like, what's my opinion on this? I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm talking about, you know? And I think like a lot of people at work, outside of work, I feel like I actually do have fear. I come with a whole load of baggage and insecurities, especially, you know, including around communicating my ideas. But you know, I think that over time, I've tried to push myself out of my comfort zone. And, and one way that I've done that, in fact, was like September 2015 was when I gave my first Disrupt HR talk, which was in New York. It was their inaugural event here. That was one of the best personal, professional, not that I feel there's a difference. It's always personal accomplishments of my life because look, I mean, I got up in front of a whole room full of people and gave a talk and I was super, super scared, but it was so incredibly gratifying when I was finished because I really feel like I nailed it. I mean, you were there and it was fun. And look, I've gone on since to do multiple Disrupt HR talks. I'm now a co-organizer of Disrupt HR in New York. So I just think it goes back to the cliche, just try different things, push yourself out of your comfort zone, like recognize your insecurities. But recognize that at the same time, there are ways to be your best self. And sometimes often that entails making yourself feel discomforted. You know, you for years now have been involved with Disrupt HR, but I feel like as much as we know about it, a lot of other people don't. And uh, a little bit about its history and its roots, like people are like, what is this? So can you tell people what Disrupt HR is and what was the first talk that you gave? Yeah. So Disrupt HR is a series or, or a network of events all over the country, all over the world now, which is great. It's really mushroomed everywhere. I think the only continent that doesn't have it is Antarctica at this point, but give it time, give it time. <laughs> right. It's basically events where speakers have five minutes and 20 slides that advance automatically as one speaks. So there's pressure, but excitement to talk about their views on work and how to improve work. And it's not just for HR professionals. I mean, yeah, a lot of the speakers and attendees tend to come from HR, but in New York, and I know in other cities, there have been speakers who've been, I don't know, physical therapists or veterinarians or whatever, who just have really interesting views to share. As the name implies, Disrupt HR, well, it's looking to challenge traditional norms and the status quo. So that's obviously up my alley too. As much as I enjoy the experience of presenting and as an organizer, working with speakers and, and getting exposed to their ideas and exposing others to their ideas, for me, what I really love most about Disrupt HR is that it helps build community, especially locally. 
I love the networking aspect. I love that it's a low key event. It's all, it's kind of like the TED Talks of HR or the antidote to traditional conferences where people are just really chill and it's not it's not always about somebody trying to sell someone something, you know? So I love that about Disrupt HR. So and what was your first talk? My first talk, which I still talk about all the time, was essentially around the myth of authenticity. I felt I still feel that authenticity is this really dumb buzzword that gets thrown around in the workplace. It's so entrenched in business lexicon that people rarely question it. Like you ask someone, is authenticity important at work? Is authenticity important in leadership? And everyone's knee-jerk reaction is yes, yes. And I'm saying no. Not only is it not important, it can be counterproductive to good leadership and just being a good employee and having the kind of workplace that we want. So can you tell us a little bit more about why it's counterproductive? Because I think one of the things that I'm interested in are the labels that we wear and the labels that people, you know, slap on us. So HR lady, uh, short, (laughs) you know, immigrant, right? We all have these labels. And sometimes they're because we love them and sometimes they're shameful. But the world of work has been telling us, bring your labels to work, like be who you are at work and we're going to be inclusive and we want our diversity numbers to represent that we have all different kinds of people who work for us. So here you come, Vadim, on stage in New York City and tell people that's all a lie. (laughs) Don't be your true self, be your best self. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, and you just said it, right? It's not about being your real self. It's about being your best self because our real selves can really suck. You know it. I know it. We all know it. And if you're telling people to be their real selves, you're giving them an excuse to fall back on where somebody might be a real jerk at work. But hey, I mean, that's their leadership (laughs) style. You want me to be my real self? Well, I'm going to be that jerk boss. We don't like jerks. We hate jerks. And so right there, just that example alone presents a very clear example of how the notion of authenticity when applied at work doesn't make sense and it's counterproductive. And something else, and companies recognize this too, like you said it yourself just now, companies will tell you, you know, be your real self, et cetera. We want you to bring your whole self, your real self to work. And oftentimes that's inculcated in their core values, right? (laughs) Right. And here's the thing. Let me ask you this. A company can have, let's say, five core values, right? Nobody will ever be reprimanded or fired for not living up to a core value around being your real or whole or whatever self. But let me tell you, you will be reprimanded and fired potentially if you violate some of those other core values at work, right? If you're really behaving in ways that contradict them. Yeah, it happens. Totally. Absolutely. But here's the larger point that by embodying that value around authenticity, it might be that at the same time, you are violating a different value. Oh, I see it. I mean, there is tension there. There's a disconnect in the message of be your authentic self, but please don't sexually harass your colleagues. (laughs) You know, like, or be your authentic self, but please don't flash your coworker, right? I mean, there are all these policies that we have at work that run against being your authentic self. And yet we lie to employees all the time, right? Why do you think we continue to lie to employees, whether we work in HR, we work in leadership? And I wonder what other lies are we telling? Well, you brought up labels a second ago, right? And you're short, you're an immigrant or whatever, whatever (laughs) that label will be. So I don't necessarily think that labels are inherently bad. Because, Lori, you are short, by the way. I am. I am. That is a true, authentic label. (laughs) I cannot run away from that. No, I can't. 
the issue is not the labeling. The issue is all of the other potential crap that we ascribe to a label, right? I think people who are fat, obese, they get it really bad. Like, yeah, you might be fat, but okay, so what? Or you may be fat, but you may be fit, right? I mean, there are overweight people who run 5Ks, they run marathons with people of all different sizes. But you're right. I mean, there's all this other noise that comes around with the label and it's all like biases or, or just, you know, stupidity even. <laughs> I don't know what else to call it. But we bring a lot to a label. Absolutely. It's what you bring to the label that is problematic. And I will say, it's not just the negative stuff that you might bring to a label, but also the positive stuff. I think a lot of us just, and there's research that bears this out, that we feel attractive people are more competent. Taller people are more competent. Thinner people. And so we ascribe like all of these attributes, well, oftentimes consciously too, let's just to be clear, but sometimes unconsciously. And I think we really have to work against that. I think it's up to all of us to just always pause and say, okay, just as an example, if we're dealing with a gender issue, well, replace gender with race, you know, or replace it with other characteristics. And oftentimes that's a means to really kind of see an unconscious bias in a new light, you know, swap different groups for example, and you realize, well, what's the difference then, you know? Well, it got me thinking about that one article I wrote at the conference board. Do you know the story? Do you remember the story where I wrote, why not just embrace this beauty bias and hire only pretty people, hire only tall people, hire only attractive people? Why not give it a go? It might have a direct impact on your bottom line. If you're going to be biased that way, just own it because maybe there's some science there, right? And do you remember you were like, we can't run this. <laughs> like you encouraged me to write it. And then you're like, yeah, we're getting some pushback on this. And so I flipped it and said, oh, this is terrible, right? I mean, my ideas were so malleable at that time. I'm like, I don't care. I just want to practice writing for an executive audience. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's a discussion around honesty that we're not having in the workplace, right? I think we do bring all of these assumptions around performance. And yet we don't really know what makes workers good. I don't think we know what makes workers good. What do you think about that? Because we have job descriptions, right, that are written and supposedly describe what it takes for someone to be successful in that role. But those job descriptions are never tested. They're not investigated. They're not really grounded any in any reliable or valid data. And yet we make all kinds of hiring decisions and performance decisions based on something that may have been written back in 1999. So performance is such a tricky issue, isn't it? It is. And so Matthew Budman, who we talked about before, wrote an article at the Conference Board Review while we were still there. And it was called, I, I might be getting the title wrong, but are we any better at managing people today or yeah. something like that? And it's a question that we can keep asking year after year. And the answer is kind of debatable. To begin with, how you even measure performance to begin with is rife with all kinds of controversy because there's really no magic perfect way to measure performance is always going to be subjective to a degree anyway, you know, and you look at scores, you know, you look at employee engagement, for example, right? And of course, every HR tech vendor likes to cite Gallup's employee engagement <laughs> right. ratings because Gallup's data shows that employee engagement is relatively low. But guess what? When you start looking at different organizations and how they measure engagement, some of them are Gallup's competitors or, you know, or just different research groups like Shuram, et cetera. The numbers are completely different and some show really high levels of engagement. 
But of course, obviously, no HR tech vendor wants to cite the high engagement scores because they have a product to sell, of course. But the point is, is that not only do we not know how to measure so much of performance and productivity, but even when we do measure it, it's often so skewed by subjectivity and lack of any real rigor behind it. Now, I will say assessments obviously play a role in all of this too, but... Uh, It depends on what assessment though, right? I mean, it's not like assessments, I don't mean interrupt, but I'm just so passionate about how crappy assessments are. And there are assessments that are based on data and rigorous science. And then there are assessments that are like, well, one could call Myers-Briggs an assessment, right? In some ways. So when you have an organization like Pfizer, where I worked, that made me take a Myers-Briggs and then made some decisions based on my profile, you begin to wonder like, what's going on here? You know, and are we just using technology and assessments to get to the outcome that we wanted? Or do we really believe in the science? So I don't know, what were you going to say about assessments? I was going to say that most of the time people take assessments and the output is either not used at all, which is, I think, most often the case, frankly, or misused. There's one assessment that I took that asked me, you know, a whole bunch of questions about my personality and and I answered them. And then what a shock. The assessment said that I typically don't follow rules, et cetera. I'm like, (laughs) you didn't have to use an assessment. Basically, the assessment is just spitting back at you everything you just told it. And this is supposed to be some sort of revelatory data that we're going to make decisions on. Something else too, at Prudential, I actually found out that I was almost not hired because of an assessment, because of the pre-employment assessment that I took. And it showed that I scored out of Prudential's bounds when it came to something like following rules. And it was my boss who hired me anyway, because she pointed out, are you kidding me? I scored low on that too. And look how great I turned out. And you know what? I turned out great at Prudential too. You did. You did. You were only laid off, not fired. (laughs) Exactly. Give it time. One of these days I'll be fired. (laughs) That's right. Well, they gave you money to go away. That's the good thing about Prudential. Well, I'm interested in your take on the future of work because you've seen over the past couple of years, some new and emerging and cool technology and also some scary, dystopian, and also cruddy technology. And for me, some of the stuff that worries me, behavioral assessments or observations based on facial expressions like that freaks me out, right? You know, but also there are all these technology platforms that don't believe that you could really disclose who you are. So what they're trying to do is get you in a moment where you're not really self-disclosing, thinking that that's your most honest self. And then they're going to make some decisions based on who you are and where you fall in the organizational hierarchy based on what you're typing, what you're reading, what facial expressions you're making through your webcam. I mean, there's like a ton of scary stuff out there, but I know there's good HR tech that you've seen, that you're passionate about, that you think can help the world of work. So anything come to mind that you want to talk about? Yeah. And I agree with you. There's really bad tech and there's good tech. Like on the bad side, I mean, just, I feel like it's a couple of days ago, HireVue is being taken to court. Yeah, right, right. For their video interviewing tool. It's not really even a video interviewing tool. It's a video screen. It's not, there's no interview. An interview goes two ways. This is a screening tool that I feel just creates more bias in it, right? Especially for people who might be autistic or just have all kinds of disabilities or whatever, you know? And it's based on a theoretical framework by a guy, I think his name is Ekman. And it's all about like micro facial expressions. And the science, although it's used by like the FBI, I mean, the science is not there. I mean, it's just one tool that psychologists have. And 
trying to understand the physical person before them, but that concept, that psychological concept is then applied to the world of technology. And you've got all sorts of biases being written into the way the code is written, the way the algorithm is developed. And also the people developing the code are not psychologists themselves. So I'm like, totally mad about higher view going in that direction. But I didn't mean to interrupt you on that. Yeah, no, no, not at all. Well, the other aspect of it is that what they're doing with that type of tool to begin with is completely countering what it increasingly means to give candidates a great candidate experience. Oh, it is so right? incredibly one-sided where you're just spewing your answers into a camera. But what are you as a candidate getting back from that? What, the, the, the opportunity to work for the company potentially? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. But wait a second, what's a good candidate experience then? I mean, I listen, I've had bad and I've had good candidate experiences. And I don't think this is rocket science. You're not going to get some revelatory answer from me on this. I think inherently we all know that a good candidate experience is one where you're constantly kept in the loop or you're treated like a normal human being, where if you've gone on even just one in-person interview, you shouldn't get an automated response from some bot eventually telling you that you don't have the job. It's just so disrespectful. Yeah, but you know, Tim Sackett would argue that if you don't get the job, you're always going to think that you had a bad candidate experience. That's not true. I'm butchering that, but that's essentially what he's saying. Like somebody does not give you an offer. Inherently, you're going to say, eh, that wasn't great. That is, I hope Tim is listening to this. Tim, <laughs> this is not I hope I got true. that right. <laughs> I just do not feel that that is true at all. Like I can tell you. You can have a good candidate experience where you didn't get hired. Global force. Well, tell me more. We're human now. We're human now. Yes. I interviewed there for a job a while back and I had a fantastic candidate experience with them. They did everything right, but I wasn't hired in the end. And you know, was I disappointed? Of course. Sure I was. But in fact, looking back now, I can see why I may not have been ready for that role. And I'm still in touch with some of the people there. I didn't hold it against them. I didn't have an ax to grind just because I didn't get the job. So that was a good candidate experience. At another company, I had a terrific candidate experience up until the very, very, very end where the recruiter and one of the people interviewing me just completely just screwed it up. But had they not, that would have been a great candidate experience. All right. So we talked a little bit about like bad tech. Higher view is an example of that. You know, that's like an easy example. Everybody's picking on them. I mean, there's plenty of bad tech out there. What's good? What do you like out there? What's interesting and interesting that'll help change the future of work? So one of the clients that I had is I'm totally going to plug this company because I really, it's so rare that I came across technology that I really, really liked. I mean, I liked a lot of the people behind the companies I worked with, but just strictly from even a technology point of view. It's a company called Sure People. And what they were doing was fantastic. It's a whole, I don't even remember exactly how we ended, ended up describing what they do at this point. <laughs> but essentially, it's a whole mix of, it's a platform that mixes culture, performance management, learning and development and assessments to really, you know, everyone says next gen, next gen, next gen, but like this really felt next gen. It was so cohesive, all the data that it was able to bring together. And what I really loved about it was that their assessment seemed to really be a great one that really could have impact in the workplace. For instance, I took it, we had some coworkers just testing it out at, at the agency that took it too. And what it did was, not only did it tell you stuff about yourself that you, okay, fine, maybe already know, you could then take your profile and if you knew who you were going to be working with on a team, 
put it up against theirs and both of you would have this guide on how to interact with each other. And before I saw that, I thought, oh, whatever, this is going to be so dumb and it's just going to be like (laughs) obvious. But it actually really did give insights that I felt were valuable and usable. And the interface was really terrific too, because there's still some really bad interfaces out there. It was really good. And the way that they were able to tie all of that to learning and development and performance, it really just tied together and employee engagement, and surveys and all of that. I have not seen another platform integrate all of the different aspects of what they do so well, so easily in such a friendly way to employees themselves. Well, there you go. Sure. People will have to have a link to them in our show notes and look at them fixing the world of work. Not bad. Yeah. Like not bad at all. As we start to wrap up the conversation, Vadim, I wonder what's next for you. You know, at the beginning of the conversation, we talked a little bit about ERE. We've talked about Disrupt HR. Like what, what are you doing? What's your 2020 going to look like? And when am I going to see you next? We need to get you to New York, first of all. (laughs) It's like, I'm always in New York and you're always on the road. What's up? Well, I mean, you know, it's one of those questions where if you would have asked me in 2018, like what's on, you know, what's on the horizons for 2019, I could have never predicted some of the, you know, I could never have predicted that I would be leaving the Star Conspiracy to go to ERE. So I don't know. And I'm okay with not knowing. I don't have some master grand plan, but I can tell you, I really am excited about my new role at ERE, because it's really a chance for me to just do what I really love doing, which combines my background, my, my skills, my interests. I'm going to love talking to all, all sorts of talent acquisition people around their ideas, their good ideas, their bad ideas, whatever, all of it. And I really love that. So my job will be remote, but I do hope to, going back to the notion of community, in some way, yeah, like build that with my new coworkers, but in other ways, just find a new community, you know, within talent acquisition people and just build my community that way. I mean, one of the things I always say is that we are all people before we are coworkers. Work is never the most important thing in life. It's the relationships you build. Like what I've loved about Disrupt HR or even just you too. It's not that we got to work together per se. It's that we got to form a relationship, a friendship with us, right? That transcends work. I mean, that's really what life is more about, you know? I feel very lucky that you and I crossed paths all those years ago and I got paid a little bit of money for that. But more importantly, that we became friends. And I'm so excited for you and everything that's ahead for you. And really glad you're a guest today on Let's Fix Work. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. And like you said, I can't wait to learn a whole new slew of buzzwords. I was just thinking (laughs) that. (laughs) And also all the gossip and all the behaviors of crazy talent acquisition people at conferences. Like, I cannot wait to gossip with you late at night about that. You know what? We'll have a couple of vodka shots. It'll be 3 (laughs) a.m. We will talk about infanticide, infidelity, and gossip from ERE conferences. Oh, God. I I don't want to get you fired. I don't want to get you fired. Yes. Well, Vadim, thanks again for being a guest. All right. Well, thank you so much. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Vadim Lieberman. And you can find more about Vadim in our show notes. And you can grab a handy takeaway PDF by going to laurierudeman.com forward slash let's fix work dash 84. And just a quick word, in the month of December, I'm going to be doing something a little fun. I'm going to have a live summit. That's right. A summit on video where you can sign up and learn a little bit about self-leadership in 2020. So details are forthcoming, but I wanted you to put this in your mental calendar because it's super exciting for me. We're going to break through that 
third wall, fourth wall, fifth wall. I'm not sure exactly what wall it is, but we're going to go on video and I'm going to bring you some pretty terrific guests, like some stellar guests, some interesting people to talk about how you can lead yourself, put yourself first, fix work in 2020 as both a leader and an employee. Let's Fix Work was produced by Danny Osmond and his team at Emerald City Productions. And if you like what you hear, as always, or you want to give me feedback, you can hit me up at hello at letsfixwork.com. Now that's all for today, and I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Let's Fix Work. If you're ready to make a real change in your workplace, start today by number one, subscribing to Let's Fix Work on the Apple Podcasts app or iTunes or Stitcher or Android or wherever you listen. Number two, write a five-star rating and review. And number three, share it with a friend, colleague, or coworker who you think would enjoy our episodes.